Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Well, this is not our normal place to meet, but it's a great environment for us to come together tonight to study God's Word. So take your Bible. Join me in the book of Mark, chapter 6, verses 45 through 56. Uh, Mark, chapter 6, Jesus, the one who walks on water and heals the hurting. Mark, chapter 6, beginning with verse 45 through verse 56, which will bring us to the end of chapter 6 this evening. Immediately, verse 45, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astonished, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret, and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring uh, the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it, they were made well." When you consider uh, matters of religion and the conflict that rages today between supernaturalism on the one hand and naturalism on the other, uh, miracles on the one hand and rationalism on the other, a few uh, events in the Bible draw the line more clearly than what we're studying tonight, that being Jesus walking on the water. With the explosion of technology today, you can go to uh, Google and uh, put in something like anti-supernaturalism, anti-Christianity, anti-miraculous, and all sorts of things pop up. And one in particular caught my attention. It's entitled Christian Biblical Errancy, not inerrancy, Christian Biblical Errancy Debate. And uh, the web page begins this way, and I quote, If you are tired of having Bible-quoting friends and relatives throw Scripture in your face, and would like to have an avalanche of information to throw back at them, you have come to the right place. We provide a level playing field for biblicists to defend the Bible's absurdities, contradictions, fallacies, and inconsistencies. And so I began to work through that website, and sure enough, they raised the issue of Jesus walking on the water. And interestingly, they don't take the route 
uh, that emerged during the uh, Enlightenment and what we call the Age of Reason or Rationalism, where a number of commentators would say, well, basically what happened was something along the lines of an optical illusion. In other words, they saw Jesus walking along the seashore and drew the wrong conclusion that he was actually walking on the sea. Uh, others even uh, hypothesized, well, actually there was a sandbar that had formed, and so he was walking on the sandbar, uh, and they again drew the faulty conclusion that he was uh, walking on the water. And so that's what uh, the Enlightenment uh, rationalist Bible scholars initially said back in the, the 17, 18, even into the early uh, 1900s. Uh, in contrast, today, and this is the route that Christian biblical errancy debate goes, they draw the conclusion that really uh, this is mythology and that uh, the biblical writers were simply engaging in what took place among the Greeks and the Romans and others in the ancient world, and that is mythology. And in particular, they said, well, we really can find a parallel for this Jesus story of his walking on the water. And it was the Egyptian sun god Horus, who in another mythical world was able to walk along on the water. And so after saying, well, look, the Egyptians had a story of their god tooling in the underworld on the water. Here's what we can say, and I quote, when it is conclusively proved that the Christian miracles are nothing more than a pagan mode of symbolic representation literalized. There is no longer any question of contravening or breaking or even challenging any well-known laws of nature. The discussion as to the probability or possibility of miracles on the old grounds of belief and doubt is closed forever. Period. End of discussion. We can all go home. In other words, as I often like to say to my systematic theology students, uh, dead men don't rise and human beings don't walk on the water. Now, I hope it won't surprise you, but I actually agree with both of those propositions. Dead men don't rise, at least not in their own power and strength. And I've never seen a man walk on water. And if you have, I'd like to meet him because I want to hear his story. No, uh, dead men in their own strength and power don't rise. And normal, regular men don't walk on water. But Jesus is neither. Jesus is God. And because he is God, he can do anything. Further, now let's kind of critique this anti-supernaturalism before we jump into the text. Second uh, Peter chapter 1 and verse 16 is very helpful. Because there the Apostle Peter, who, by the way, was in the boat this night, and we'll learn later, also got out of the boat, according to Matthew, and did well at first, and then did bad and had to be rescued uh, at the end. But he wrote this in this second epistle, quote, <clears throat> We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, the apostles were not ignorant when it comes to the views of the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans. They knew of their mythologies, and they rejected them. Instead, they followed a different person who, as 1 John 1, 1 says, we have heard him, we have seen him with our own eyes, we looked upon him, and we have touched him with 
our hands. We're talking to you about a real flesh and blood person who actually lived in history. Further, this story does not read like mythology in any form or fashion. It speaks in terms that are physical. It speaks in categories that are historical. Uh, He's quite specific in the details that he notes. And again, it gives all the evidence of being told to us by an eyewitness. And, of course, we've learned earlier in our study of Mark that the eyewitness behind the gospel of Mark is the apostle Peter. Finally, if Jesus indeed was truly raised from the dead, then his walking on the water is not a problem at all. Uh, Anyone that can come back from the dead can certainly walk on the water. And furthermore, he can also perform the wonderful miracles that we will also read about in verse 53 through verse 56. So having dealt, I think, sufficiently with the criticisms of the, the rationalists and the skeptics, what does God want us to learn from these two paragraphs concerning his walking on the water and his healing the hurting? Two major ideas for your consideration this evening. Number one. Jesus is the one in whom we should have faith. Verse 45 through verse 52. Now, what's the context? Uh, He's just fed the 20,000 in Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. We saw last week that messianic expectation goes to a feverish pitch. In fact, we learned from John chapter 6, verse 14 and verse 15, they thought this was the time to take him by force and make him their king. However, it is not the right time, and this is not the means whereby Jesus would receive his kingdom. He is a king, and he will receive his kingdom. But before he gets to the throne, there's a road that has a cross on it that he must walk through first and foremost. And so this man for others has business to which he must attend before he sits on the throne prepared for him by his father, a throne that is predicted in Second Samuel chapter 7, in Psalm chapter 2, in Psalm 110. And that business does include a revelation of his deity as he walks on the sea and also his going to the cross to do the will of his father. In other words, he is the obedient son doing God's work, God's way, and he will do it whether it's walking on the water or whether it is his hanging on the cross. Now, why should we have faith in this particular individual? Well, in this particular story, Mark will highlight five different truths. Number one, because we are guided by his plans. Verse 45, immediately, there's that favorite Markan word, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, Uh, while he dismissed the crowd. Jesus takes charge of this politically charged situation, and immediately he makes the disciples get to the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida. By the way, this is the first time Bethsaida is mentioned in Mark. We'll see it later in chapter 8, verses 22 through 26. It's located on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, just to the east of the Jordan River. And tragically, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 20 and 22, they are condemned uh, along with Chorazin for their lack of repentance in light of what Jesus did in their midst. In fact, Jesus says it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than Bethsaida and Chorazin. Why? Because there's this theological principle, revelation brings responsibility. The more you know, the greater is your responsibility. That's why I, again, often will say, like to you all tonight, it's dangerous for you to be here because you will have more information, more knowledge after tonight. 
And if you don't obey it, when you stand before God, your accountability will be greater, not less. In fact, I often say to folks, if you have no desire to ever obey God's Word, my suggestion would be don't ever come to church again. Because all you're doing is heaping upon yourself more and more accountability, more and more responsibility, and more and more judgment. Well, Jesus dismisses the crowd. He sends them home. And the disciples are now in a boat going ahead of him to Bethsaida. And so keep this in mind. They are exactly where Jesus wants them to be. Uh, He made them. The word means to compel. Uh, He forced them to go into the boat and go on the other side ahead of him. The implication is they didn't want to do it. Uh, The implication is they wanted to stay with him, but they still obeyed him. I like what Charles Spurgeon, that wonderful Baptist preacher, said in London, quote, Their sailing was not merely under his sanction, but by his express command. They were in the right place, and yet they met with a terrible storm. In other words, Jesus sent them into the storm on purpose. He purposefully sent them into trouble. You guys are going to Iowa. Hey, I hope it just goes absolutely wonderful, fantastic, happy days, happy days, happy days. That's what I would want. Uh, That's what I'll pray for you. Uh, But the fact of the matter is, he could be sending you into a storm. Mean people, uh, bad breaks, things not working out exactly like you want. And the fact of the matter is, well, where's God? Oh, he's in the whole thing. Because sometimes that's what he does. You say, why does he send us into trouble? Because he always has a redemptive purpose when he does so. There's some things you learn in the storm you don't learn anywhere else. We all know that. There's some things you learn when you're at the end of yourself that you can't discover any other way. That's when you find out he really is in control. That's when you find out he really does have sufficient power to meet my needs. It is where we are put under pressure that our faith is increased and we trust him and him alone. His plans are not always easy. But his plans are always perfect. They're always best. So he says, in essence, believe, don't doubt his plans. Secondly, though, we should be encouraged by his prayers. Verse 46 is a very simple, short verse. And after he had taken leave of them, that is, he sent the disciples into the boat. He's left the crowd. He went up to the mountain to pray. Jesus leaves the crowd, goes up to an unspecified mountain. It is interesting, Mark calls it the mountain, but he doesn't tell us which one it is. And so Jesus goes up into a mountain, he's by himself, and he's there to pray. Now, I pointed this out in our first uh, chapter study. There are only three prayers in uh, Mark's gospel. The gospel that records the most prayers of Jesus is Luke. But Mark only records three, one at the beginning, one in the middle, and one at the end. The first one is back in chapter 1, verse 35, when he is defining his ministry. Here's the second one after he has fed the 5,000, and they want to make him king immediately. And the third one is at the end of the gospel when he is in Gethsemane, uh, just before he's arrested and taken to the cross in chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. Question, what do we learn from this single, simple verse? And I think there are at least three lessons. Number one. Anytime Jesus faced a critical moment in his ministry, he prayed and he saw the face of his father. Secondly, when he prayed, he most often got away and he would pray alone and in private. 
Thirdly, in each instance when he prayed, there are overtones of spiritual conflict and warfare in the air. In other words, prayer for Jesus was both intense and prayer for Jesus was war. John Piper said it so well here, quote, We do not know what prayer is for until we know that life is war. Well, Jesus knew that better than any of us, and so he would seek his Father every time he was in the heat of the battle raging about him. Now, for what did he pray? It doesn't tell us, but I would assume he prayed for himself that, Father, in spite of the temptation to take the kingdom without the cross, which, by the way, was how he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. Here are all the kingdoms. I'll give them to you. All you got to do is bow your knee one time. My, my way's a lot easier than your father's. So I would suspect that he prayed for himself. I think also he probably prayed for the crowd that he had just dismissed because the, the next day when they come to him again, he's going to say to them in John 6, you didn't come because of me. You came because you were filled and you want some more food. And then he preaches that bread of life sermon and drives away 99% of his congregation. But I think he was praying for the crowd for whom he had compassion and concern. And then finally, I think he probably prayed for the disciples. Why? Because they were desperately in need both of his prayers but also of his power, which leads us to our third observation. We are blessed by his power. Verse 47, when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. It's now late at night. In fact, verse 48 tells us there it was the fourth watch, which means it was between 3 and 6 a.m. So they left most likely while it was still light. 8 o'clock if it's in the summertime. So they've been out there 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, minimally 3 o'clock. I mean, they have got to be absolutely exhausted. They have got to be absolutely at the end of themselves. And it says there in verse 48, he saw them. Now, don't run past that. It's what time of the morning? 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock? Any, any sun up? No. Any moonlight? No. Any stars? No, there's a storm. It's cloudy. It's raining. It's pitch black. And so even though the text says it just very simply there in verse 48, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, it had to be a miraculous scene. In other words, once again, he exercises his attributes of deity, not for his own benefit, but for their benefit. And so he sees them, and once more, I believe, he is moved with compassion. And so he does something that has never been done before, has never been done since. He came to them, it says there in verse, 47, verse 48, he came to them walking on the sea. By the way, Matthew chapter 14, verse 24, the parallel account, says the boat by this time was a long way from the land. So most likely... He walked several miles out into the Sea of Galilee, seeing them supernaturally, noting that they are in serious, serious trouble. So through the black darkness, he makes his way to those that he has called, those he loves, those he cares for. Uh, he knows where they are, and he knows what they're going through. Just like this evening, he knows where you are, and he knows what you're going through too. Now... There is a remarkable phrase in this verse that has caused commentators to have uh, epileptic seizures. 
Uh, they are, are back in Georgia, we'd call it conniption fits. I'm sure you North Carolinians are familiar with that good southern phrase. You say, what is the phrase, Danny? The last phrase of verse 48, he meant to pass by them. Now, you say, well, how do you know that this has caused all sorts of problems? Because I've given in your note eight different views of what that phrase meant. That's exactly how I know it caused them some problems. And so I'm just going to walk them through you, uh, with you very quickly, and then I'm going to draw what I think is the correct understanding. Number one, Jesus intends to overtake the disciples and playfully, surprise, surprise, uh, here I am uh, on the other side. I don't buy that. Second, he wants to pass by, but does not do so when he sees disciples are in distress. But the text already told us he saw them in distress while he was up on the mountain praying, so that won't work. Number three, he's trying to test their faith. Maybe an element of truth in that, but I don't think it's the primary uh, reason. Number four, the phrase should actually be translated, he was about to pass by them. In other words, oh, I'm almost walking past them because it's so dark and everything, but again, very unlikely. Fifthly, the phrase refers to the disciples' mistaken impression of Jesus' intentions. In other words, they think uh, he is going to pass by them. And by the way, since we're about to see that they thought he was a ghost, I think they'd been happy for him to keep on walking. That's just my own uh, opinion there. Uh, number six, the phrase means he intends simply to go beside them. And that's actually the view uh, of John MacArthur. Number seven, he wants to be seen walking on the sea, but wishes to remain unrecognized, something that supposedly fits the, the messianic secret theology of Mark's gospel. And then number eight, another view takes its cue from Amos 7, 1 through 8, 3, and interprets the whole phrase metaphorically. He wanted to help the disciples in their difficulty. However, I am convinced there is a better understanding rooted, as often is the case, if we read the New Testament well, in the Old Testament. There's this Old Testament uh, understanding of God called a theophany. A theophany is a manifestation or appearing of God to human eyes. We call it a theophany. Some even believe that in the Old Testament, the person who appeared was Jesus himself, and they will call that a Christophany, a appearing of the Christ uh, before he was incarnate. Uh, the theophany idea, I think, fits better. And here's what I think is going on. I think this phrase, which, by the way, in the parallel account in Matthew, is not there. It's only in Mark. I think Mark is purposefully drawing on this idea of a theophany, that is, a manifestation of God himself. Let me give you, and you have it in your notes, I'm going to read them for you, three texts that I think bear this out. First of all, Exodus 33. Verse 18 through 23, listen, and I'll emphasize certain parts of the verses. verses. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man cannot see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, uh, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock while my glory passes by. And I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. 1 Kings 19, 11, Elijah. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. 
And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rock before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. So, as the Lord passed by Moses at Sinai, as the Lord passed by Elijah at Horeb, so now the God of the Old Testament, who is Christ, passes by his disciples that they might see who he is. He's God that they might see his glory, and that they might believe. Listen to Job 9, 8, and also Job 9, verses 10 and 11. He who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number, behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him but here they do see him and they should perceive that they are now seeing the God who has been made flesh in other words I think they would have recalled the Exodus story I think they would recall the first king story I think they would have recalled the Job 9 passage and so God and God alone walks on the water and Jesus is passing by before them to show them beyond question that is who he is. But unfortunately, verse 49 makes it clear they don't get it. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out, for they all saw him, and they were terrified. Unfortunately, as we learn in verse 52, they still don't see, they still don't understand. Oh, they see someone walking on the sea, and they conclude it is an evil water spirit, a, a ghost, the Greek word phantasma. Uh, no surprise, they scream in terror. And then verse 50, all saw him, and they were terrified. And again, I want to be fair here. I think I can understand that. I think if you and I had been in the boat with them, and we saw some dude suddenly strolling across the sea, we'd probably scream uh, like a girl and be terrified too. We would not be handling that well because, you know, basically you don't see things like that happening like ever. Now, it's in this point that I think something's interesting. You say, so this is the same story that we find in, in another gospel that adds the Peter incident of Peter getting out, walking, sinking, and having to be saved. That's right. It's in Matthew chapter 14, uh, verses 28 through 31. And that's where we receive the account of Peter's walking, sinking, and being rescued. So here's the million-dollar question. Why does Mark leave it out? After all, Mark's gospel is Peter's gospel. So why does Mark leave it out? And here's what I think the answer is. Mark is the only one who has the phrase, he meant to pass by them. And my conclusion is Mark, for whatever reason, is more interested in the one walking on the water than he is the ones in the boat. He's more interested in the bread of life who just fed 20,000 people. He's more interested in the one who gives us living water from which we will never thirst again. And so he chooses to focus on him and his power to save and his power to deliver. But I'm not through making my argument. Look at the next major observation. We are blessed by his person, and I think I can drive it home. Verse 50, for they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, and the uh, ESV says, It is I, do not be afraid. 
And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astonished. The miracle is not just about Jesus rescuing the disciples from their problem. It is much more. Primarily, it's a manifestation of his deity, grounded in Old Testament imagery and theology. And so to his acts of God walking on the water, he will now add the words of God. You say, how so? Well, start with verse 50. He seeks to calm them, and so he says there in verse 51, uh, verse 50, excuse me, take heart. Uh, The NASB says, take courage. Uh, The New King James says, be of good cheer. Uh, It's a present imperative. It's a word of command. So he's calling them to, to be brave. After all, they are in the place of obedience, and Jesus is there. Then he says, next, it is I. Now, I think in your notes I have the Greek phrase, ego I me. Is that not correct? It's there in your notes. Uh, so I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. Then thirdly, he says to them, don't be afraid. And it's another imperative in the present tense, which means continually uh, don't be afraid. And if you've ever studied Greek, you know that an imperative with a negative is basically commanding you to stop an action and process. So in essence, he's saying stop fearing. Stop being afraid. Why? It is I. And verse 51 brings the episode to its climactic conclusion. He got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And their response, utter astonishment. NIV says, completely amazed. The message says, they were stunned, shaking their heads, wondering what was going on. But now, back to the statement, it is I. For those of you that are here that are seminarians that had to labor through Greek, this is one of the reasons it was worth the effort. Literally in the Greek text, that phrase translated, it is I, is simply, ego I me, I am. Take heart, don't be afraid, I am. Now, if you know your Bible... Moses at the burning bush, Exodus 3.14, who am I to say that you are? Tell them, I am that I am sent you. John 8.58, when they tried to stone Jesus because he claimed to be God. How did he claim to be God? He made the statement before Abraham was, ego I me, I am. In other words, not only has he acted like God by walking on the water, He claims to be God, associating himself with the God of Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. In other words, the God who safely led the Hebrews out of Egyptian slavery is also more than capable of delivering his disciples out of the storm on the sea. He walked where only God can walk, and he bears the name that only God has. Once more, deity is in a boat like we saw back in chapter 4. And once more, they're overwhelmed. Once more, they still don't get it. And in fact, they won't get it until the resurrection. That then brings us to our fifth observation about why we should trust Him, because we're blessed by His patience. Verse 52 simply says, They did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And so Mark exposes them for their lack of trust in Jesus. In essence, he almost says, will they ever learn? I mean, they just saw him feed 20,000 people. Don't they realize only God can do that? But the impression did not last very long. As soon as they're out on the uh, sea 
in a storm, they freak out, they flip out, and they begin to wonder why God is doing this to them. Mark says, even after feeding the 5,000, even after walking on the water, even after saying, I am, they did not understand. In fact, it says their hearts were hardened. You'll see that same phrase, by the way, in chapter 8, verse 17 and verse 18. In other words, they remain in their ignorance and they become more and more callous. And again, believe it or not, I'm encouraged by this because it simply says there's hope for you. And there's hope for me because sometimes even in the midst of God doing his great works in my life, I still wonder sometimes, where is he? What's he up to? I don't understand. But Mark's point is this. If he can feed all these people, if he can walk on the water, he can be trusted. Don't say, yes, God, I know you can and have done this, but my situation is unique. My situation is beyond uh, impossible. You don't know that no one's ever been through what I'm going through. Yes, they have, and he knew it even before you started going through it. And he will not allow you to go through something. First Corinthians teaches us that you cannot bear with his grace, with his power, and with his help. Now, very quickly, second major study this evening, Jesus is the one we should come to when we hurt. He delivered the disciples from the storm, and now he's going to do more work, but not where they initially thought. This, by the way, is the third summary of Jesus' Galilean ministry. Most Bible scholars believe that in his three and a half years of ministry, he made three loops through Galilee. Three times he went through Galilee, and then after the third tour, which we're coming to an end now, he'll not go back again. We already know he's never going back to his hometown. He's probably not going back to Nazareth. No, from here, he's going to lead them in chapter 8 up to Caesarea Philippi, where they will make the great confession, you are the Christ. And then from there, he will start his trek toward Jerusalem and toward the cross. But here you have another summary of what you would expect, Jesus healing those who are hurting. And so the first thing we see is Jesus can be sought by those in need. Verse 53, when they had crossed over, they didn't land at Bethsaida, but they came to the land of Gennesaret, and they came to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately, there it is again, uh, recognized him, ran about the whole region, began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard that he was. So the boat lands in the area of Gennesaret, not Bethsaida. The, the wind has sovereignly blown them off course to a different location, but it really doesn't matter wherever he goes. Hurting people come flocking to him in need of his divine touch. Verse 54 says, having landed the boat, they get out and immediately... The people recognize him, no surprise there. And then verse 55, the people enthusiastically run everywhere throughout, note the phrase, the whole region to bring the sick to him. And so Jesus is there. The people know that if they can get to him, they can be healed by him. Jesus, again, can be sought anywhere, anytime, by anyone in need. And as we're about to learn, no one is turned away. Why, finally? He blesses those who believe in him. Verse 56, and wherever he came, in villages, uh, in cities, the countryside, they laid the sick in the agora, the marketplaces, and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it, they were made well. Now, folks, whether these people were converted or not, we can't say. Minimally, we know they at least had enough faith in him that he could heal them. 
And so they would bring him to the public place, the Agora, men and women bringing those who could not get there themselves. And the text says they implored. And by the way, it's in the imperfect tense, which means they kept on imploring. They kept on pleading. The, the New King James says they kept begging just to touch even the fringe of his garment. Now, what you basically need to understand is the long flowing robes that men would wear. At the bottom, there would be little tassels. Now, this, by the way, was required by the law, both from Numbers chapter 15, verses 37 through 41, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 12. It was a reminder of the man's obligation to keep the Torah. It was a reminder that they were obligated to obey the law. And the text ends with just a simple but uh, affirming phrase, and as many as touched it, they were made well. Now, let's be clear. Anything magical about the tassels? No. It's all about having faith in the one inside the garment with the tassels. In my notes, I call it deity in a first century Hebrew robe. And then I note God is often found in surprising places, isn't he? So let's conclude. J.I. Packer, the great theologian, says, great statement here in light of our story, the true God is great and terrible. Just because he is always with me and his eye is always upon me. Living then becomes an awesome business when you realize that you spend every moment of your life in the sight and company of an omniscient, omnipotent creator. That is well, well said. So I conclude. Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. He loves you more than you love yourself. And that is a lot of loving. He is more compassionate than you could ever hope. He is more powerful than you could ever imagine. And he knows your needs more perfectly than you or I could ever comprehend. This bread of life allowed his body to be broken that your soul might receive the spiritual nourishment it needed. He walked the stormy waters through the dark night that led to the cross that he might rescue us and that we might find never again to be terrified or afraid. Thus, through the wonderful touch of his bloody, redemptive hands, we can forever be healed of sin's diseases and made well forever. He walked across the stormy waters of judgment in our place, and he took on our sickness in his own body. Take heart, he says, and understand, I am. Let's pray. Father, your son is indeed, as you are, the great I am. You are indeed whatever we need wherever we are, because you are the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God who is never caught off guard by anything. And yes, Lord, we learn tonight that sometimes you purposefully send your children into a storm that we might recognize that we are limited, finite, that we cannot save ourselves. And when we come to the end of ourselves, then we find you there and out of desperation, sometimes we put our faith and trust in the one we should have been trusting all along. And so, Lord, I thank you that the disciples do give me hope because I know that I have an imperfect faith, too. And in spite of all the many good things and wonderful things and even supernatural things you've done in my life, still sometimes I doubt. My heart is hardened and I don't understand. Lord, forgive me. Help me to understand, not be afraid. And trust and trust completely the one who is the great I am. And so, Lord, we give ourselves to you tonight knowing that we can, knowing that we should, 
knowing that you will indeed be sufficient for every need in our lives. We thank you for that and praise your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.